0: In the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost. Amen. The baptism of Jesus is the preeminent biblical epiphany. It is present in every gospel. It is the necessary, necessary introductory revelation from which the rest of the story flows. As St. Mark tells us, quote, the heavens were opened, the spirit descended And the father's voice proclaimed, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. The baptism of Jesus can be understood in the light of the creation of Adam in Genesis. The first man was made, quote, in the image of God. Genesis tells us that God formed him from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. There is a correspondence in the Bible between the breath of God and the spirit of God. Thus, God formed the first man in his image by breathing his Holy Spirit into him. The harmony between God and man of Genesis 1 and 2 was severed by the sin of Genesis 3. In the Bible, this condition of Separation from God is referred to as a state of death. Adam and Eve died the day they sinned in the sense that that life-giving bond of communion with God in the spirit was severed. Thus, Ephesians says of our condition in Adam apart from Christ, quote, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The old covenant provided a provisional way for God's people to enter back into relationship with him. But God's people were unfaithful to the covenant. At the end of the Old Testament, Israel was in a state of exile from God. And the New Testament teaches us that Israel's failure was a revelation of human sin. In our natural state of separation from God in Adam, we are unable to satisfy the requirements of God's covenant. What is needed is a new man without sin, filled with the Holy Spirit to fulfill the covenant for us. In his baptism, Jesus is revealed to be this new man, the true son of God, whose union with the Father in the Spirit has never been severed from the very beginning. He will resist temptation, fulfill God's will, and begin God's new creation. Having fulfilled the covenant, he can now give the spirit to God's people. He can raise them from the dead and give them his resurrection life. The baptism of Jesus can also be understood in the light of the Old Testament promise of the Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed one the Greek form of the word is Christ. When the Bible refers to Israel's kings as the Lord's anointed, it is saying that they were literally the Lord's Messiah. As Israel was increasingly unfaithful to the covenant, God promised to send the Messiah, a descendant of King David, who would rule justly and righteously as Israel's kings had failed to do. A man was revealed to be God's chosen, God's Messiah, when a prophet anointed him with oil. Oil was a sign of the gift of the Spirit. Thus, in 1 Kings chapter 1, Nathan the prophet, along with Zadok the priest, poured oil on Solomon's head, to make him the successor to King David as Messiah King. In the baptism of Jesus, John the Baptist is the recognized prophet. However, instead of John pouring oil on Jesus' head, the spirit descends directly from the Father, indicating that Jesus is the one specifically chosen and anointed by God. The spirit is unmediated by a human prophet. John the Baptist is present in the story as a witness. The kings anointed by God proved themselves to be God's chosen by defeating the enemies of God in battle. The New Testament reveals that the chief enemies of God's people are Satan, sin, and death. Jesus conquers these enemies in the wilderness and on the cross. And in the ascension, after the victory of the cross, Jesus returns to the Father as the conquering hero, where he is enthroned of Lord as Lord of all. The scene represented in Daniel chapter 7. The baptism of Jesus also reveals who we are in Christ. For we are baptized into Christ. This means that we are grafted into his baptismal scene. And we share in all that he is revealed to be. The bond of union with God in the spirit that we lost through sin is restored to us. God adopts us as his children and makes us heirs with Christ of his kingdom. The gift of the Spirit in baptism and the strengthening gifts of the Spirit received in confirmation give us the power to live as Jesus lived. We are no longer stuck in communion with the old Adam in patterns of sin leading to death. We now live a life of prayer, in communion with the new man, Christ, and are able, in the spirit, to fulfill the law of love. As Romans chapter eight, verse four says, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In Christ, we also share in Jesus' rule over the creation. Jesus restores our dominion over the creation given to us in Genesis 1.28, but lost through sin. Now in Christ, we reign with Christ. Now we can conquer the world, the flesh, and the devil in the spiritual battle of our own individual lives. A central part of new life in Christ is a movement from self-centeredness to service, a movement from taking to giving. In our old state of sin and spiritual emptiness, We looked for things in the world and in other people to fill us. Now, the gift of the Spirit fills us with the fullness of God. Now, rather than taking from others to fill our needs, we can give to others from the fullness we have received in Christ through the Spirit. The New Testament centers our vocation to give on what are called our spiritual gifts. The idea is that the general gift of the Holy Spirit takes on a specific form and manifestation in each of our lives. As our epistle today says, quote, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy, in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. A spiritual gift is how you can give to others in a way that feels natural to you and a way in which the other is also edified by it. This can be contrasted with giving that is motivated by a need to be needed or a need for approval or a need for status or recognition from others. Most of us need to continually purify our motives in exercising our spiritual gifts. This is the main Uh, topic of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great chapter on love. The concept of spiritual gifts highlights the complementary nature of our individuality, our uniqueness, and our unity in the body of Christ. Our unique spiritual gifts only find their rightful place within the body of Christ. We cannot give unless there is someone to give to, and both giver and recipient need each other. This highlights the reciprocity of giving in Christ. It is not a zero-sum game as giving often is in the world. Consider a community of 10 people with a variety of spiritual gifts. Each person freely serves with his or her own gifts, but each person also receives the benefit of the gifts of nine other people. The contagious geometry of giving leads to a continuous increase in the experience of Christ's love in his body. This is the answer to the false individuality of our culture. We cannot be whoever we want to be without regard to our impact on others and apart from our true identity in Christ. Only through our baptism into the body of Christ can we be truly ourselves and truly united with others. What we call the life of prayer is our continual return to the scene of Christ's baptism, which is the scene of our own baptisms. Prayer is our continual growth into our new and true identity as gifted members of his body. We come to the altar to experience again to remember who we are, to remember God's favor and goodness towards us, that we are very members in corporate, in the mystical body of his Son. We go back into the world in the Spirit as new people to do all the good works that God has prepared for his children to walk in. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.